Well, how's everybody doing? You guys doing well? Um, if you have a Bible and you want to go to Romans 15, um, we're going to be wrapping up our series in Romans um, called One Church. And, uh, and so ne- here, let me tell you what's going to happen next week. So um, you remember prior to One Church, we were in a series called A Life in Chaos, which was uh, basically consisted of uh, King David prior to his kingship, uh, really being anointed by God and spending much of his life running from um, the current king named Saul. Um, and so the chaos that ensued there, well, um, after beginning next week, we're going to circle back to Life in Chaos Part 2, and we're going to begin to walk through Second Samuel and look at the life in chaos surrounding David on the throne as king. And so um, we're excited about circling back there. Um, but today, what I want to do is, as I wrap up one church, um, we've talked for the last five weeks about what it means that we're called to be really one people together um, for the glory of God. And um, today I want to look at this idea of what's at stake if we're not? Like, if we fail in our mission to be one church, what's at stake? And so... Um, Probably all of you are familiar with this whole idea of um, what could be known as cause-effect, right? Um, if you've ever played dominoes, you know the, the idea of cause and effect. Well, when I was growing up, my, um, my parents, just unbelievable people who loved Jesus and wanted to see their kids grow up to know and love Jesus, and so they put us in Christian school, um, and much of who I am today as a result of just the, the grace of God on my life and the, the schooling that I had. And so for the, the, first, for the beginning, uh, really at elementary school, I was at one school up until uh, this, this uh, middle school. And right around uh, after middle school, uh, going into high school, my sister, um, my, I have two sisters. My oldest sister had graduated from the school, Faith Christian School. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, and she had graduated from there. And uh, I was getting ready to become a freshman. And my, uh, my next sister, two years older than me, was getting ready to be a senior. And my parents um, really had begun talking about just some concerns that they had regarding the school and what was going on. They just began to see progressive legalism. They began to see just uh, a progressive sense of of politics entering into what was happening there. And so they, they were at a crossroads. They're like, okay, what do, what do we do with our kids? Do we move them to a different school? Uh, our daughter is going to begin her final year of high school. Do you, do, do you take her from this school and move her to a new school in the last year? And, and, uh, and so they, they were caught with this, this cause-effect, um, what's-at-stake moment. Um, and they made the decision to uh, move us from Faith Christian School to North County Christian School, where I spent the duration of my high school years. My sister spent her senior year at one school, and um, much of who I am is a result of that decision that my parents made. It's at that school where the Lord got a hold of my heart. I really just played the church game in middle school, high school, or middle school, and the Lord got a hold of my heart in high school, and um, it's where he began to open my eyes to uh, vocational ministry. It's where he called me into ministry. It's where I met my wife. Um, It's where mentors to this day um, I'm, that I met there and impacted me are still um, just a profound voice in my life. Um, I graduated from there, went on to Bible college, 
uh, came back to teach at North County Christian School, and it's there that I met this family called the Maxidens. Um, and Rick and Jan aren't here, they're on vacation in Florida, but, um, and it's there I began to build a relationship with Rick, and um, the Lord used that to call me to come and pastor with Rick here in the past nine years, and leading to, to me being here today. And it all hinged on a profound decision um, that had a lot at stake. And my parents had really no clue. They were just trying to follow Jesus and discern. But what was at stake in that moment, in that decision, do we take them out of faith Christian school and put them in North County School? North County Christian School was a game changer for me and my sister. And, um, and so I use that as an illustration. Um, there is a lot at stake if we fail to be the church that we see Paul describe in Romans 15. And um, fundamentally, and I'm going to say this, and you're going to be like, yeah, we say this all the time here. But then bear with me because I want to unpack it. But here's what's at stake. Can you guess what's at stake if we fail to be one church? The gospel. The gospel is at stake. So um, if you're familiar with the New Testament, um, put that picture up there. If you're familiar with the New Testament, this image um, is actually a picture of Stephen being stoned. So this is Stephen right here. Um, this picture right here is the Apostle Paul, uh, actually Saul right there. And um, so if you're familiar with this, this idea, so Stephen was a profound leader in the early church. Um, he preached the gospel boldly, called people to repentance boldly and with no shame. Because of that boldness, he was arrested um, he was brought to prison, brought to trial. Um, the scriptures actually say in Acts chapter 6 that, um, that there were false witnesses who were put in place to falsely accuse Stephen, which is crazy. So here in this moment, Stephen then is brought before the high priest, and he's standing before the high priest, and the high priest says these words to him, Are these things so, so these false witnesses are unpacking all of these false allegations as to why Stephen um, is adulterating the name of God and um, adulterating the gospel and should be destroyed for his faith. And, and um, here in this moment, Stephen is in this cause and effect moment, what's at stake, um, where the high priest looks at him and says, is this true? And he has one of two options. I can say what they want me to say, and get out. Or I can say what's true, and it might cost me everything. So what's at greater stake? The truthfulness of the scriptures or the life that Stephen would prefer to live? And so what he does is he, you can look at it, Acts chapter 7, we won't turn to, turn to it, but... Um, he runs through the gamut of God's redemptive story, unpacking Abraham all the way through the Old Testament, all the way leading up to Jesus and what Jesus would come and do. And he boldly calls his captors to repentance. We know how the story ends. But I want to read these words to you. Acts chapter 7 now, when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Okay, so you know in that moment, 
Stephen probably got a little bit nervous. Or maybe not. Look at the next verse. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We saw that depicted in the image. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. For when he had said this, he fell asleep. You think Stephen understood cause and effect? Yeah. But what was at stake for him? And here's, as I, was, as I was thinking about this, here's what I'm convinced of. Okay, because we know that not long after this event, what happens to the, the very guy who approved of this murder? He's wooed by Jesus and comes to faith. The very murder of Christians comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm convinced of, is that Stephen, who knew the gospel was at stake, and the faithfulness of proclaiming that God is enough was greater than a life of comfort that through Stephen saying the gospel is what matters. The apostle Paul, Saul at that time, came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. If Stephen folds, if he doesn't live out the faithfulness of God in that moment, I don't believe Saul becomes Paul, and we don't have two-thirds of the New Testament. All in the name of Stephen realizing the gospel is at stake here, and the gospel is the prize. And so what I want to do is I want to, uh, I just want to unpack three things from Romans, uh, Romans 15, 5 through 7. We've pretty much beat it like a dead horse, um, and so this is about the last I can squeeze out of these three verses today, um, and some of them are going to just kind of be some repetition and some high level, man, what's God calling us to in this? But three things that I think um, if, that are in jeopardy if we lose this idea of what it means to be one church, and I'm going to be um, oddly pastoral, um, and what I mean by that is there's three of them, and they all begin with an H. Okay, for those of you who've been around a long time, like, like we just, I just never do this. But um, it just worked out. So, um, so uh, three things that we're going to look at. Uh, hope, humility, and hospitality. And how these things are really things that we have to grab a hold of. And if we lose them, we lose the essence of what we're called to be as one church in the gospel. And so, hope. Let's read Romans 15. Four through five. I just want to back up one verse, so here's some new stuff for you. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Um, so we, we hinge on these words and this idea that the gospel is our foundation of endurance and encouragement. Like the gospel, what we mean by the gospel, the, the perfect life, the awful death, 
the amazing resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the future second coming, that's the gospel. All of this is what enables us as God's people to, to endure, right? To press on, to walk in encouragement. Here's what's incredibly challenging as Christians, if you're a Christian here, is that the Bible actually says that, that we're, uh, we represent God, that when people look at us, people should see God exuded through our life. Um, Paul, who wouldn't have been around and written the New Testament, I believe, if Stephen would have um, balked on the gospel, he, he says in 2 Corinthians 3 that we're like letters read by all. Are you familiar with that? That people look at our lives and they, they, they see and they come to understand who, who the church is through us, who Jesus is through us. And, I mean, if we're honest, we live in, a, in an age and a time where the world is desperate for a church to be unified. The world is desperate for a people that stop attacking one another and stop being this people with all these answers, but more so be a people who are hopeful. That's our job as Christians. Um, Hebrews the writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. I just get this image. My kids love it when I ride, drive in the car. And they're like, Daddy, do that thing where you move the wheel back and forth really fast. And I'm like, well, this isn't the ideal road to do that on. Um, so not right now. Um, but when there isn't more ideal road to do that on, um, I do at times. Um, Sorry, Norm. They love it when I swerve. Um, nonetheless, but I think about that image of what happens if you take a car and you just hit the gas and you don't hold on to the wheel. What happens? It, you begin to, to lose the path. You begin, the, the car naturally falls off. And here what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that, that we would hold steady to the path and to hope that's built in, in God, in a faithful God, I, that the church, literally, I mean, think about this. We're, we're in like just, just this challenging time, um, which it seems like we're always in a challenging time. Um, but just the tension and the racism and all that's going on, um, the world is looking for the church to be an anchor. They don't know that. But we're called to be an anchor. We're called to be people that that draw the unbelieving community to a place of hope. Um, I had the opportunity to lead a prayer vigil at the Hazelwood Police Department on Monday night, and um, it, was, it, was, it was planned last minute, uh, and there was just an unbelievable crowd of community who came, um, not because probably not even because we were going to pray and everyone believed in God and they knew that God would, would help us, um, but probably more so as we want to gather together and figure out a way forward. Um, and they came because they, they wanted answers. They wanted, um, we need a solution. And we gathered around and and uh, two of us as pastors led in prayer, drawing back to the reality that our hope and our anchor is in Jesus. Um, and we prayed for law enforcement. We prayed for families who've lost loved ones in disputes with law enforcement. We prayed that God would make a way. We prayed. I think that's the thing about the church is the church are the ones who are supposed to model there is a way forward. 
Right? When everybody's freaking out and everybody, um, the church is supposed to model, there's a way forward. And most of the time, the answer is, it's not the way you think. Um, I love this quote by this theologian named N.T. Wright. He says, hope is imagining God's future into the present. Think about that. Okay, because as Christians, we're, we should be insanely futuristic. Insanely futuristic. In such a way that it breeds and births into this moment a steady hopefulness because we know how the story ends. We know that God's at work. Listen, it's a game changer for the present reality. C.S. Lewis, he says it this way. Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes And all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up in his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. Listen, that's the hope that we profess as one church. And I firmly believe that that our hope and the way we live in Hope is the greatest evangelism tool we have as God's people. Is that there is a way forward. And I think that if we fail to live as one church, we shatter that hope and we destroy essentially the gospel. Um, We destroy the gospel. The second thing is humility. Look at 15, 5, and 6. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Anybody have this verse memorized yet? We've been at it long enough. Um, probably have it in there somewhat. Somewhat. Grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, think of all the, the, the words that are in there that depict this idea that the gospel breaks down barriers and walls that divide. Okay? The gospel doesn't allow us to have these preferences that destroy these preferences that thwart ultimately God's call to his name. That's what the gospel is about. And we know living in America that the world teaches us the pursuit of this American dream, right? The world teaches us, go get your own. Get as much as you can for yourself. Build the American dream. Hoard, hoard, hoard. The centerpiece of the gospel is what? The centerpiece of Christian living is what? Humility. This is not about me. It's not about what I can attain for my family, what I can attain for myself, how big of a church I can build, how much money I can gain, how many subways I can run. It's not about that. It's about humility. It's about living in humility. Um, There's an amazing book out called The Celebration of Discipline. And the author, Richard Foster, he describes the humility of Jesus uh, in pretty amazing way. Listen to this. It says, whenever there is trouble over who is the greatest, there's trouble over who is the least. That is the crux of the matter for us, isn't it? Most of us know, most of us know we will never be the greatest. Anybody, anybody in here not willing to, I don't know, I'm, I, might get, I might get there. It's too, it's too early to, too close to call. Okay. Um, 
Most of us know we will never be the greatest. Just don't let us be the least. No one wanted to be considered the least. Then Jesus took a towel and a basin and redefined greatness. Okay, you familiar with the story of John 13? He redefines the, the perfect God-man, redefines greatness. Therefore, the spiritual authority of Jesus is an authority not found in a position or a title, but in a towel. That's our call as one church, to ultimately serve one another, but ultimately be a service and a blessing and not, listen, not be a people who live entitled. We're prone to that. I think that it, it's sad, but I think so much as Christians, like we, we live entitled as if we earned something, as if like we're to pat ourselves on the back for where we're at and God's love for us because we had so much to offer the Lord. Um, which couldn't be further from the truth. Um, we're not to be entitled people. Listen to James, James 4. Pretty, uh, pretty perfect passage for the days that we're living in. It's going to describe what happens when we don't walk in humility and we compromise humility. Listen to this, or look at this with me. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Like, we could debate all day. Hey, what do you think, you know, that fight that happened down there? Like, what do you think caused that? Well, he did this. Well, well. Like, we could talk about that all day long. James is just going to get to the point. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Well, that's just brilliant, right? Like, you get in a fight because you're passionate about something, and you disagree with somebody about something, right? Some of you are nudging your spouse. Um, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrongly. You spend it on your passions. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Um, I think that is an unbelievably clear depiction of our world today. Um, but I'm also sad to say that I think in large part it's a, it's a fairly good depiction of much of the church. Or it can be. Um, where even as God's people, we're prone to, I'm going to get my own. I want to be seen. I want to build this status and this identity for myself. So we quarrel even among each other. And we're not willing to lay down our pride and walk in humility. Um, I think it's I think it's interesting how as parents, as a parent, I'm so quick to teach my kids, um, share your stuff. You know, you're going to share those toys. You know, we're having a bunch, bunch of kids over this afternoon, and we're always like, okay, guys, remember, our, this, none of this stuff is ours. Whose toy is this? Jesus. Why is it Jesus's? Because he, he wants me to use it to share with my friends. You know, like, <laughs> they know the answers to that. Um, <laughs> and so... We talk about this, like, <laughs> I'd probably say it hopefully with a little more joy than that. Maybe not. Um, but they, we talk about that, and we're so quick to be like, you're being selfish. Um, but then when we become adults, we think we've graduated from that, right? And the world revolves around us, 
and uh, we can do whatever we want. And um, let's just be clear, that doesn't change when we become adults, right? It doesn't. And the truth is, is that where we fail to live as one church, we compromise the call to humility and the truthfulness of the gospel. That's what Paul is depicting in Romans 15 when he talks about living with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that we would lay down our pride and walk in humility. The last thing is hospitality. Look at verse 7. This is just such, a, such an awesome passage, awesome verse. It says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Um, it's interesting. One thing I'll point out is uh, how easy it is as human beings to be um, very homogenous, right? Where we, we're prone to, to be around and invite people that, that are like us, that have similar interests and similar hobbies. It's not necessarily intrinsically wrong. It's just kind of by human nature. Like you hang out with people that kind of do some of the same things that have similar interests. And we tend to gravitate to those kind of people who think like us, who act like us. And I think it's it can be incredibly challenging to be welcoming to people who think differently, right? Um, what's interesting is if Jesus was pro-homogeny, we'd be in big trouble. If Jesus was like, I called you to myself because we're so much alike. Um, he would push us even further away, right? But he, he didn't. Uh, it's interesting, too, that Jesus was constantly confronted for being too hospitable. You ever pick up on that? One of the things that, I'll just, just a side note, this isn't even in my notes, but just a side note, I think that as Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, that we should constantly be reading the life about the life of Jesus and seeing, does our life, are we, are we pursuing and, and is our life mirroring his more and more? We're not just going to be there, but are, are we trying to be more like Jesus as we grow in maturity? Because Jesus was constantly being confronted with being too hospitable. You know, people would come up to him and be like, like why, are you, why are you hanging out with them? Like, why are you, like, you know that that person is a drunkard, right? You know that person is a prostitute, right? You know that person is like distorting people's image and money and using it for his own gain. You know that, right? He was constantly confronted. In fact, he would go to those people the most often. What if we were the kind of church that would be accused of being too hospitable, too welcoming? Why, why are they here? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be wonderful to be accused, like Jesus, of being too... Listen, we're a close community. Most of you in the room know exactly what's going on in the other person's heart right now, and what they're struggling with and what they're walking through. But here's the dangers that in that close community we become a clique that doesn't allow um, others into, that isn't welcoming. That's the danger, and that's what we have to fight against as a, as a small church, is that we would pursue what it means to be hospitable and welcoming, because that's what Jesus was. Um, so, have you ever had, um, I had this incident, I feel like the past couple times, uh, where my doorbell rang. How do you react when your doorbell rings? 
Here's the odd thing about my house and my doorbell ringing is like, for all of you that come over to my house all the time, like, how many of you use my doorbell? Okay, so if the doorbell rings, normally I hear footsteps and I'm like, hey, Rachel. You know, she's getting a glass of water out, you know, like, hey, yeah. Um, you just walk in my house, right? So if the doorbell rings, it's like, all right, who am I talking to, right? Um, and so I was, I was working uh, at, my, at my kitchen table, and I can see out the front room. And uh, I see, like, across the cul-de-sac, a guy going door to door. And you know what I did? <laughs> Shut the door, <laughs> right? Because I was like, I don't want your siding. I don't want your roof. I don't need a lawn guy. Um, I'm an awesome lawn No, I'm not really an awesome lawn guy. But, um, like, I, I, but, but yes, in part, that was true. But here's the other reason why I shut my door and didn't want to have anything to do with him is I was busy. I was working. In fact, I was working on this message. <laughs> um, and I didn't have time to even cordially be like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, what are you selling? Oh, you know, I'm not, you know, I didn't have time. Um, and I think one of the things, uh, even that I see in my own life is we're too busy to be welcoming to people. I think one of my biggest prayers and where I want the Lord to grow me in is this area of, um, I'm prone to projects over people. My kids are like, daddy, will you, will you help me with this? And I'm like, yeah, just a minute, I'm finishing up this, or just a minute, I'm finishing your tree house. Like, it's amazing how, how, Often I got mad at my kids because they wouldn't let me build the treehouse for them. Get away, I'm trying to build you a treehouse, right? Like projects over people. We're not welcoming because we're busy. We don't have time to be welcoming. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to be the church and to be the kind of people that are so busy. Sometimes we don't have time to be welcoming to one another, right? Um, there's a schedule, there's kids, there's jobs, there's friends, there's so much going on that it's a sacrifice to stop our schedule, to invite people into our home, to invite people out to dinner. It's a sacrifice um, to sacrifice our preferences. It's a sacrifice. Um, there's, an, there's one guy um, by the name of Walter Brueggemann. Sorry, I'm just kind of pummeling you with quotes and stuff today, but this one you're going to have to dig deep for. Um, I had it up earlier, and Sean was like, you're going to have to explain that one, man. So um, he, he calls this idea commodity acquisition. Um, commodity acquisition is basically, I'm going to try to get my own. Um, seeking personal gain. And his answer to uh, this idea of, like, I'm going to get for me commodity acquisition is Sabbath. Look at this quote. I'm not going to have a ton of time to unpack this, but um, I'll draw just a quick conclusion to it. It says this, In the New Testament, the prophets, in their various rhetoric, consistently voice a critique of the turn to commodity and issue a summons to return to the covenantal ways for which the restfulness of Sabbath may be taken as a sign and measure. So basically what it's saying is that God's people were continually rebuked because they were seeking their own gain over and above the fact that they were completely accepted in who God had called them to be and to rest free in that. I'll continue. But in acquisitive Israel, so this 
the church, the nation of Israel, who was so like desirous to get for themselves, so well represented by Solomon. What do we know about Solomon? He couldn't get enough wives. He couldn't get enough concubines. He couldn't get enough for he was constantly like more, 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 more. Commodity acquisition. Sabbath became a fake occasion, an official act of work stoppage. But it was, in fact, it was, in fact, a festival shot through with anxiety and aggressiveness, fed by commodity acquisitiveness to which Israel had become enthralled. Here's what it's saying is that they'd even put in place religious activity that would make it look like they were resting when all the while they were just becoming more and more anxious and being more and more overwhelmed and not resting in the fact that they're loved children of God. All in the name of get for myself. And here's the amazing thing about the call to welcoming people is it's a call to rest together and be reminded of our identity as loved children of God as we sit together, as we play together, as we welcome humanity into our presence and represent God. It's where we lay down. I don't have to run and strive and work hard to have an identity to be accepted. I'm accepted already. And if we lose this idea of one church, we lose hospitality and we distort the gospel. Here's the truth, is the world's desperate for this and they don't know it. We're desperate for this and we don't realize it. And our job as one church is to become the kind of people who hold out hope together to one another, but to the world. That we rest in the work of Jesus above our own efforts. That's why we're here every day, every time we come here. Right? In a, in a few minutes, we're going to respond, and we're gonna, we do communion every single week. And what is that? Why do we do communion every single week? If you've been here a long time and you still don't know that, here's why. It's because we're reminded every week it's not in our effort. It's only in the work of Jesus Christ. So we put the basket there. It's to be reminded I don't care how much you give. How much you give doesn't make you more and more accepted in Jesus. It's through the finished work of Jesus. And this is the gospel where we continue to lay down our agendas and our preferences and we become the most welcoming people on the planet. Uh, let's pray and give us opportunity to respond. God, I thank you for your word. God, I pray that you'd grip us this morning with the fact that the gospel is at stake in, in how we live. God, I thank you that you're a pursuing God. I thank you that you're a God who welcomes us. That you're a God of hope. God, would you make us the most hopeful people ever? That you're a God of humility. Would you make us a humble people? Who break down walls. God, would you make us a church that's accused of being too hospitable? God, I thank you for your word. Um, God, I pray that as we respond that you would quicken our hearts to you and that you would stir us up to know you and love you more. In Christ's name, amen. So as we sing... um,
and we respond, whether you want prayer in the back or as you come up and give to the Lord. If you're a member here, that's for for you. And, And we take of the Lord's Supper. Here's what I just want to remind us of is that these three things, hope, humility, hospitality. Would we allow the Lord to be a welcoming presence, and as we go into his arms, allow him to lead us and convict us where he wants to grow us more and more into his likeness? Let's respond to the Lord.